And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we're back for another episode of the Startup Hustle. This is your host, Matt Watson. Today I'm joined by Aaron Painter, who's the founder and CEO of Get Name Tag. We're going to be talking about all the crazy cybersecurity and security stuff in the world we live in today. I've got Aaron with me here on video. I don't know if you guys know this, but we're on YouTube now. You can go check us out on YouTube. But I'm not really sure if it's Aaron. It might be a deep fake. And but I think Aaron might be able to help us with this. So Aaron's gonna we're gonna talk more about that. Before we get started, I do want to remind everybody that today's episode of the Startup Hustle is brought to you by Fullscale, which is my company. We have 300 employees who do all forms of software development, front-end, back-end, QA, mobile, mobile, all of it. You can check us out at fullscale.io if you need to grow your development team. Aaron, welcome to the show, man. Thanks. It's great to be here, Matt. Is this really Aaron? I, you know, How do I know? It's, it's an inc- How do I know? It's a hard thing these days. I got a LinkedIn outreach from someone yesterday, and I sent it to my team. I said, what do you think of this mail? And they said, I don't know. Is it really the person? And gosh, we live in this world where you honestly just don't know at an increasing rate when someone reaches out if they actually are who they claim to be. And I apologize. I said get name tag. That's your website. It's getnametag.com. Name of your company is name tag. Um, you know what I'm not sure about? And I don't know. I don't know if you have this concern, but I think a lot of Americans do. Is Joe Biden a deep fake at this point? Or is he, well, is he really is he really out there on the campaign trail? I'm not sure anymore. You know, political figures are one of these ones where we most often don't know, is it really them? Are they in the picture? Or is It's so easy to misrepresent what someone might be saying or thinking or how they look on a video. But, you know, for me, it was it was super personal, actually. I At the start of the pandemic, I had been living and working outside the U.S. for almost 20 years. And I moved back to the U.S. just at the start of the pandemic. And, you know, everything was kind of going digital. And I had a bunch of friends and family members who had their identity stolen. Oh, and wow. I said, you know what? I'm going to be a good friend. I'm going to be a good son. We'll jump on the phone. We'll figure this out. And everyone we called, they said, all right, well, just to make sure I know it's you, I'm going to ask you a few security questions, which we all kind of know are sort of a joke. And it turns out someone had called just before we did and answered those security questions and took over accounts. And so I sort of said, you know, this was a little bit pre-deep fakes getting so much attention in the, in yeah. the media. But, but it was, how, how do you actually know who the human is sort of behind that screen, whether it's a mobile phone screen, a computer screen, like how do you actually know who the person is and why is this so difficult in the modern age? And then ChatGPT and then everything else came out and my yeah. gosh, now it's even more, more hot theme. Yeah. Like I've seen on TikTok, like the fake Tom Cruise and all this stuff and it looks pretty convincing. I mean, it, it's incredible what you can do with AI and deep fakes. And like, I joke about Joe Biden, but like, it's like a thing, like, like, North Korea or Russia or whatever could make some video like pretending to be Joe Biden or whatever, saying whatever they want to say. And I don't know about you, but my grandma would believe that. Like our grandparents would just see this stuff. Like they're also the same people that go outside and yell at the clouds for dumb things. Love my grandma. But she would believe any of this like conspiracy theory, any of it. She would believe any of it. I mean, that that's part of our challenge. 
Yeah, I think, you know, as humans, we're, we're trained to trust our senses. And often when we see things, we hear them, we, we, we said they seem real. And maybe when you look really closely, you get a little bit better. But, you know, my, my argument is, is that platforms have a responsibility to know who that person is. And you can still operate by an alias, a pseudonym or other things to, you know, shield your or be a certain way on a platform. But it's a lot like the physical world. Like when you go to, you know, board an airplane, you go through TSA, you know, they you go through a security check. Coincidentally, yeah. they check your government ID. Someone looks at you. They say, is this ID look real? Do you match to it? Okay, let's, you know, let's put you through physical, you know, check your bags. But you're then in a secure environment and you can sort of feel safer in that space. Right. When you go to an event, you know, you check in and someone's, all right, let me see your ID. Let me see where you work. They print you, coincidentally, a name tag you might wear at that event. But you kind of know everyone you meet in that space has kind of been verified. Yet, when and, you go onto a dating platform today, right. you log in with a social network or a Gmail login. You know, when you are on social, most social networks themselves, they don't necessarily know who you are. And so pre-deep fakes, this concept of actually knowing who the yeah. person is mattered. And you can kind of be anyone. Like the internet we've created today allows you to spin up a new Gmail account in seconds and yeah. create a new, quote, identity. And I just don't think that works for high trust or really many scenarios. Certainly not all, but many scenarios where we need more trust in today's world. Yeah, I mean, there are different scenarios, right? It's like people want to be on Twitter or Reddit and be anonymous and troll people and do all sorts of dumb stuff. But there's other pla- there's other times, right? You absolutely would, would want to have trusted security and stuff. So th- there's like a balancing point of that. And even on social media, after we're out people bullying and all this kind of stuff, right? Like people can anon- anonymously bully people. Um, one of my friends here in Kansas City uh, has a teenage daughter and some other kids in the school like did something with one of her photos that put like some kind of racial slur or whatever. And then they sent it all over the school and, and was worried about like his daughter and her reputation. Cause these kids had sent this photo like bullying and like all, just all this like weird stuff that happens in this age. Right. And, but you know, what's for me, the funniest thing I'm laughing when you're saying this about the importance of security, it seems like the least important part of security is our voting system. <laughs> like you know, there's no voting for secure for there's no security for voting. <laughs> You know, um, employment fraud uh, into claims, the PPP claims relating to COVID. Like there's been so much fraud that unfortunately yeah. happened because when it goes digital, whatever you're doing, call it voting, call it, you know, making a claim, accessing your account. We really don't know who's behind the screen. And what for us, I think one of the biggest things we've learned is that the help desk or that support desk kind of becomes the biggest risk vector. Because you can do other things to try and protect your account. You can, you know, put on forms of multi-factor authentication right. and you can Help. make that login more secure, but you actually still don't know who the person is behind that account. Right. And it turns out the best way to take over someone's account or really the easiest way right now is you just call and say, hey, I'm locked out of whatever forms of login or multi-factor authentication that were put in. And then that poor help desk rep who means well, right? It's someone who got into the business of trying to help people in theory actually becomes this identity investigator where they start every call, right. not how can I help you, but it's, I've, I need to make sure it's you. I'm going to ask you this and this. And they're silly questions. They often don't work. Both sides get frustrated. And it's actually not keeping the account safe. And so what we've learned is that these, these help desk reps just don't have good tools today. And they are becoming the, the attack vector that at the moment, actually, we're in sort of an epidemic, like the largest attack vector, MGM in August, Caesars, Clorox, you know, 230 other big companies alone in the last few months have fallen victim to this one big group that's basically using this vector over and over yeah. because enough companies haven't shut it down as a risk angle. 
Yeah, it's like a, a lot of IT security issues come from hacking some employees, you know, access and getting access to some kind of internal systems or whatever, right? Like you can have the, the world's greatest firewalls and all these kinds of things. But at the end of the day, if you can compromise some user's account and get access to stuff, like that's the easy attack vector. And, and if you just go knock on the side door to the help desk and say, oh, I lost my key today. You know, my yeah. phone's not working. I upgraded my phone. Oh, well, uh, okay. How do we make sure the right person's getting in? And you nailed it. I mean, that's what's happening is people target an employee, ideally one that has some sort of privileged access or, you know, good credentials. And they use those credentials to come in. And that's the source of ransomware. That's the source of data breaches. But at the moment, it's mostly happening. And the leading cause is because of this social engineering at the help desk. Yeah. So so tell me about NameTag and how you guys can help solve this problem. Yeah, for us, we've really been on this journey of kind of finding our niche. Uh, you know, in, in the early days when I, again, I had that personal scenario of, of my friends and family, I mean, their accounts taken over. I set up to say, well, where, how does identity verification happen today remotely? And typically it happens when you open a new bank account. And sometimes maybe it's a rental car or some things that actually need a government issued ID. But for most banks, they call it a, a know your customer or a yep. KYC process. Yep. And it's a typical flow for the end user. It's scan your ID, it's take a selfie. But they, they sort of check the regulatory box. Okay, we've done sufficient work to make sure that you are, we think who you claim to be, great. But then you notice when you call that bank back, they're not re-verifying you in some way. They switch to using security questions. And so we sort of sort of, why is that? And as we looked into it, and in fact, in our product, we had bigger ambitions for what we wanted to build. And we said, hey, can we just use one of the many companies out there that do this kind of KYC, scan your ID, take a selfie flow? And we found that 100% of them were very were similar. They all operated using web browsers. Could be desktop, could be mobile, didn't matter. But when it's on a web browser, unfortunately, you're limited to the desktop webcam and you're open to all these kinds of attacks. People call them injection attacks, for example. You can inject a data feed from a different camera or you can hold up a video or you, can, you, know, you can't quite go to ChatGPT today and say, hey, make me a California driver's license. But there are other platforms where you can. You click save as PDF and... Most of these KYC tools, you click upload the PDF you just generated. I mean, it's, yeah. it's not built for security. Yeah. So we kind of built a better mousetrap. We, we invented a way to use mobile phones as opposed to web browsers, exclusively mobile phones, and all the fun toys that come with them in terms of cryptography, onboard AI, onboard ML, AI in the cloud, to be able to ask an end user to go through a very similar flow, scan your ID and take a selfie, but to do it in a really high fidelity way. Okay. And so... We built this really cool thing, but then for us, it was, gosh, identity, like we've already been talking about, there's so many areas, social networks, dating sites, banks, all these scenarios in life where you really need to know who the person is, but where do you start? And so for us, NameTag, we really started to find this niche around the help desk. And it was this concept that when someone is locked out of an account and they need, the help desk rep needs to verify who they are, whether they're an employee of that company or a customer. And that our technology could be applied to really secure the help desk and to stop those sort of social engineering attacks that help there. So that's sort of the genesis of at least how we became who we are today. So is the idea now that when you're talking to the bank that the bank would like text you a link and you would click that link and it would open up the mobile app and then you would go through this process and then the bank, you know, uh, person on the phone would know once you've completed it and you authorize, like how, how would that work? Super spot on. So we have a variety of different ways to deliver kind of a link as we think of it. And it could be scan a QR code on a web page. It could be you're in a text chat for support. It might be you're on the phone and they, they text you or email you a link. 
whatever it is, you you tap on that link and it launches something on your mobile phone. Uh, it's a really neat set of technologies called uh, app clips and instant apps from Apple and Android. Yeah. Yes. They're, they're cool. They're not used that often today, but they um, have incredible value. It's basically a full app. It registered with Apple. We're fully in alignment with them. But as opposed to going to the app store and downloading right. an app, this thing just pops up on your phone. It's delivered right. over the air. It feels slick. It feels like it was always there. But for us, it allows us to then guide you through a process that says, hey, in order to do whatever you're trying to do, unlock this account or authorize a transaction, this company's asking for some information. To get started, scan your ID, take a selfie, and then you consent as an end user very specifically to share only the information that that company has requested with them. Great. The company gets that confirmation and you can proceed. The average process takes about 23 seconds for the end user the first time. But because we're using mobile phones, we're also able to do something really cool, which is that if you've come back to that company or any other company, once you've used Ametag once, we're able to leave a little thing in deep in the secure enclave of your phone. Doesn't take up much space. You don't know it's there. But we can say, hey, we recognized you. You've done this once before. So you might not need to scan your ID again. You could just take a selfie. Okay. And we ended up patenting this concept of, you know, we call it re-verification where, okay. and then you just, hey, take that selfie. Let's compare it to the earlier selfie back to the government ID photo. So with high fidelity, we can let you back in in single seconds to sort of re-verify yourself. Maybe to your point, each time you call to do that transaction with the bank. Yeah, that doesn't sound so bad. Like, I'm surprised you're able to, the, the first process in 23 seconds though, like, I, again, back to my grandma, I just see my grandma like fumbling around, like trying to figure out how to find her ID and take photos like it only takes 23 seconds yeah you know there are a few things one we've gotten really good at being able to use instant feedback for the user so it's kind of like it's actually better than but like when you're trying to deposit a check in mobile and it says hey you know turn left turn right like let's try and fit the check in the box right um you know if you offer guidance it, it actually helps the user kind of get better at it and deliver a good good scan Right. Um, we're also able to collect a lot of other good telemetry or you know information in the process so we can assess it for security reasons to guide the user. But more interesting, I think, for us in the early days, when we did research with what the experience was like before, that process, particularly actually for people you know later stages of life, sometimes is very frustrating. Like, where did you live in 1970X? Actually, is a very stressful thing. I I can't remember the house number yeah. or the address that I lived. Yeah. I, you know, you could be the genuine person, but the questions are not generated towards making you feel good. Um, they're frustrating, and so it it the, the amount of time it took and the frustration it created was much higher than something actually that was scan your ID and take a selfie. And so across demographic groups, we found it to be an enormously um, you know positive user feedback, but just a really positive experience overall. <laughs> So this sounds really cool, and it, it kind of sounds like the next generation of two-factor authentication, right? It's instead of an SMS code and give me the code, it's like, uh, take a picture of your face instead, right? Like, we're going to see if this is really you, right? Like, at, at the simplest form, right? Like, that that's ultimately what this becomes. Like, it's a much, much better two-factor authentication. Yeah, we kind of think of it often, um, even in the, the airline scenarios. Like, if you think of it as, you know, TSA pre-check, Actually, but in our case, you don't necessarily need to re-enroll. But hey, if you you go through that on-demand enrollment the first time and you scan your ID and take a selfie, then it's faster for you when you're going through airport yeah. security. And so can we create that same experience, whether you're logging in or you're on the phone with the help desk rep um, or chatting with them or whatever else, so that there's confidence on both sides. And it's just a it's a faster experience as much as a more secure one. Well, this is really cool. I I, th I could see a lot of great uses in the uses for this. You talked about earlier trying to find your niches. 
like what what niches have you found that this has been super useful for? Like what industries and use cases? Yeah, a good proxy for us has been so we've narrowed in the help desk and we thought that was at first actually we had an advisor, you know, in, in spirit of kind of listening for feedback and you know, I'm really passionate about. Uh, we had an advisor early on who, who worked at a, a company HubSpot and he was a CISO there and he's an amazing person. He said, hey, you know, we've started rolling out MFA on our accounts at HubSpot because we want our accounts to be more secure for our customers. But as we do that, we have more and more people that are locked out or that lost their phone or upgraded their phone or for various reasons it didn't work. And so he said, we're getting this high volume of people that we need to make sure that who they are because we can't risk letting the wrong person into their HubSpot instance. And so he said, hey, can I use this to, to verify those users when they reach out to support? And then they did, and that worked really well. We got a lot of great feedback. And, and then actually recently, they've, it's now automated. So if you use HubSpot and you go, she went through it today, and you have MFA turned on and you're locked out, it will give you the option of contacting support or going through an automated flow using name tag, verify who you are, and then we'll reset your account access. And so we, we found this sort of anywhere that MFA is enabled yeah. became a really nice proxy for us because right. that usually yeah. means that it's something you're trying to protect. Right. It's a high value account. If it's a, you know, I, not to be spared, you're logging into your favorite news site or, you know, a low value subscription service, like eh, if it's the wrong person, you know, Netflix might not like you to deceive, but do you mind if someone's using your Netflix account in your family? I don't know. Maybe not. What's the worst right? that like, can happen? Yeah. What's the worst that's going to happen? That's right. But when it's a high value account and typically yeah. MFA being enabled, which it is for almost all employee accounts, and then it is for high value customer accounts. Um, so, you know, another one that was really helpful for us was the internet domain providers. So companies like Network Solutions, uh, Web.com, uh, Namejet, Snapjet, they use us for same thing. You call to sort of make a change on your account. And that's that's a high value transaction. If you're able to take over someone's internet domain, oh, that's yeah. very risky. Oh, yeah. And so, so they use name tag. Sorry, right, well, let's make sure that you're the confirmed domain owner before we allow you to make changes to that account. And so these sort of high value moments, turns out there are a lot of them in our digital world but they've really helped us narrow in on let's try and solve and make those high value experiences faster, but yeah. also frankly, just more secure. So how hard was it to build this technology? Um, the app clips, does the app clips part work on Android? Is there an Android version of this as well? There is in, called instant apps. Um, instant apps. Okay. Is, yeah. Similar. So we get good coverage there. We get good global coverage. We support 10,000 plus document types. Um, it's some really unique things or some countries that are doing some innovative work around government IDs and making them digital. Fortunately, the U.S. is is not a leader here, but countries like India actually are. And so, you know, if you're in India and you go through our flow, you know, we integrate in a really slick way with the national ID platform there called Aadhaar. And you can kind of just scan your Aadhaar QR code as a citizen. And, uh, you know, it, it validates in a slightly different way. But it was... Um, it was a lot of work. Typical in security, you uh, you know you build for a while and then you go to market. And we started building and we wanted to test. We wanted to get feedback. And we it was just as the pandemic was starting. And so we had some companies that started to come to us and they say, hey, we see you're doing something in identity, identity verification. But we've got these employees of our companies particularly who are, we need to make sure they're vaccinated. And so we don't want to like have them send us their ID card and their COVID vaccine card. And we have HR people checking those. They said, hey, can you just create something for us that confirms both, that checks both and matches against them and give us a report back? So we said, oh, interesting. Like, not necessarily a revenue driving thing, but it'd be great to help us learn and improve our product and add you know, some service to help people get back to work. 
And so we did that for a while. And it, it was a, an early way for us to start before we kind of went to market with our, our leading current product. But it helped us improve all of our technology and the user experience and the user flow. And so then we went to market, really just the beginning of last calendar year. It, um, we were ready and we had been really well refined and kind of battle tested. And I think that led to us getting very large scale enterprise brands very quickly because they saw the product was enterprise ready. And so we started with these big, you know, really flagship, awesome brands because they, the problem was real for them. And they knew that our product was at a level of maturity that they could, they could trust us to deploy. Well, and you guys have only been doing this for three, three to four years now. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so how long did it, did you have to, is that when you actually started this or did you kind of actually start this even before? No, that's when we started it. And so okay. again, it took about two years to build product um, and again, go through that user feedback uh, uh, and run it through those COVID scenarios ended up being a really nice kind of non-revenue generating way to, yeah. to offer a service and to learn and then to help us build really what became an enterprise ready product, which basically just went to market right at the start of 2023. So did, so did it take you almost three years of R&D until you got like first revenue? Uh, two years. Yeah, two years. Two years? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that for those that are listening, that's the reality. <laughs> you know, I that's the it, hard part about R&D and, and building software. It doesn't always take two years, but a lot of times it takes 12 months, 18 months. Like, it's very common. That's right. I think particularly in security, you know, if we were a friendly consumer service, you'd probably do it very differently. You throw stuff out, yeah. you get feedback and make it better and better. But no one wants a half-baked product in security. Not and, for enterprise sales, like never. I, it, Exactly. And then that was the other piece was enterprise where we said, Hey, yeah. we want to deliver this for big, you know, high value companies. And actually now we're a little bit, we're exploring how do we service slightly smaller companies? Cause some of them have been coming to us and saying, Hey, I want this. And we're even exploring, does the value prop change a little bit? You know, and one thing that we've learned a lot of is let's say you're a company with, I don't know, two, three, 500 employees. Actually, one of the biggest challenges we hear is from the IT team. They say, look, I'm tired of getting a phone call on Sunday morning at 6 AM because you know, one of my employees is locked out of the account and they can't work, right? So like, it's a personal thing. Like I actually, security one, I might know most of the people ish in my organization, but it's getting bigger, but I really would love some automation around this, not having to be the bottleneck that they call and track me down. And whereas for larger companies, they, they certainly don't know all the people at the IT help desk, but they might have some forms of automation for parts of it, but it's still a manual kind of identity interrogation before the help desk person triggers the reset. And so it, it, it adjusts a little bit kind of how we integrate, uh, but it's the need is still sort of the same across all, all company sizes. Well, I think, do you, do you see a future where this replaces, you know, normal two-factor authentication, like you guys become the replacement of that? Yeah, we built something that, that could replace it. Um, you know, we have a different way to log in. It's faster and it's more secure. Uh, it knows authentically who the human is behind the screen. But back to that spirit of focus, you know, there are other people that help do MFA today and good companies that do it and to different degrees, not always the best user experience, takes a while to set up, but no matter what, all of them have this issue of lockouts. All of them have not solved what to do when a user calls the help desk, when a user is locked out, no one has. And so we said, okay, let's rather than sort of go compete on this, Hey, we have a better way to do MFA. Let right. us go and say, hey, stick with whatever you have for MFA today and right. let us kind of surround that or fill the gaps because there's a pretty glaring gap that exists. And so that's back to kind of our learning over our journey has been let's focus on these help desks. Let's focus on securing them uh, and helping people surround whatever MFA they might have in place 
rather than go head to head and say, let's try and replace yeah. whatever you have. What, what about like just simple forgot your password on stuff? Like that also seems like the same sort of attack vector because it just emails somebody a link to then sign in. But like, that's not a very secure thing either. Like a hundred percent. So it sort of depends on what, what your infrastructure is, like what you're trying to protect. You know, typically companies that have just reset your password and don't have some form of MFA, again, it's often a little bit of a lower value item. Yeah. Uh, and so it's reset your password is absolutely right. Often linked with reset your MFA. Yeah. But we like the companies that have MFA enabled or are planning yeah. to enable it because it's usually a higher value item, good or service. Um, and they're taking those steps. And you're absolutely right. Emailing, you know, email me a link is super not safe. But you know what's bizarre, actually, especially as we spend time with employees and workforce, and all, I mean, you could go through this in your hiring for your company, but that first time you hire someone, it's, the technical term is enrollment, but it's kind of bizarre, right? You, your HR might say, we found this great person, they signed their offer letter, they're onboarding, they ask IT, hey, go create an email address for this person and an account on our network. And then typically that is emailed to their personal email address. So for most companies, maybe you've done I-9, probably not until in the U.S. until later, a few days after they've started. But you're saying, I hired this person who I don't actually know that they're really the person I hired. And then I'm going to send to the personal email address credential access to our entire network. That is wildly scary. And so recovery is a big hole. But so is this sort of secure enrollment of how do you make sure you're onboarding the right person into your environment? And the HR, it's HR leaders that have educated on this, us on yeah. this, because many of them have come and said, hey, we've had incidences of fraud. People turned off their camera during a Zoom interview for then they show up for work. And a few days later, we realized maybe it wasn't them or people have sort of one person interviewed, a different person showed up for the job. Um, all these just sort of gaps at that enrollment process kind of when an employee starts. Interesting. Well, I do want to take a second to remind everybody that today's episode of the Startup Hustle podcast is brought to you by FullScale, which is my company. We have 300 employees in the Philippines that work for dozens of other startups and scale-ups. And Aaron, I know you have spent a lot of time working internationally, and I wanted to ask you about your experience of that. You said you lived in China for a while and, and done a lot of different stuff. What is your experience working internationally? Yeah, it was a big part of my career. Uh, you know, I spent 14 years at Microsoft and I started uh, in Seattle and Redmond and uh, I was there for about two years and loved it. I was you know, a product manager for Office uh, kind of in the early days before we had what you now think of as 365. We had the individual apps, you know, Word, PowerPoint, Excel, and my role was to bring them together into what we then called the system. Um, now, obviously, Office 365. And it was super neat, but I, at the time, just felt like there was more. I'd gone to college in the UK and I wanted to be outside the US. Um, so I just thought it was a lot to learn. I thought there was a lot to learn from different cultures and people and ways of doing business. And so I ended up with this awesome role uh, based in Paris, uh, supporting Microsoft's head of international at the time. So now essentially head of all go to market and sales and marketing. But we had about 60% of our revenue, 50,000 people. And I was his chief of staff. And so we had this crazy life of, you know, we'd fly in, we'd fly out different countries, 30 countries a year and meet, you know, employees and customers and government and um, sort of represent Microsoft and help Microsoft how to think about how many companies and countries could think about using technology in new ways. Um, I loved it, but really quickly, I got involved in uh, new market expansion, which to me, Microsoft was a big company and I, I love the entrepreneurial side. So the, the fun sort of frontier was where's a country where Microsoft doesn't operate yet? 
Now, France, Germany, UK, Japan, we were quite established. Um, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, um, you know, Angola, uh, you pick your country. We, we, were, we were often not very invested yet. And so I, I ended up becoming this group. I sponsored it. We called it New Markets. It was about 31 countries. And it was sort of deciding and then helping to open who's the first person, who's the third person, what do we sell, how do we transact in a given country. Um, and did that for several years, loved it, uh, then moved to Brazil, uh, sort of the first foreigner there. I didn't speak Portuguese. They were getting better at English very kindly. Uh, I ran the Windows franchise there at this just awesome moment of Brazil's economic growth when people were starting to have a middle class and had more money. And turns out first they wanted a, a car. And by the time we were done, the second thing they wanted was a computer, ideally one with Windows. Um, and that was super neat journey. And then, and then ultimately five and a half years in China. Uh, and then after I left Microsoft, uh, I went to run a, a company based in the UK that uh, was heavily European. We were AWS's sort of largest service partner in Europe and then uh, expanded into GCP and Azure and managed services and other things. But so much of my life was not looking or sounding like the other people at the table. And so I often I didn't speak the language. I didn't you know, know how to communicate necessarily, but I had to find ways to learn from the people that were around me and to try and teach, share, and, and hopefully help them learn too. Yeah. And whether that was employees or that was customers that I was working with or governments or other things, it, this sort of learning to listen became really fundamental in um, how I operated in different places in the world and then became sort of this principle that we've really tried to carry forward into building Nametag. So as I'm curious, as you have started Nametag, have all those Microsoft relationships helped you at all? Like, have have you been able to you know, use those relationships in your network to, to help grow? Yeah, I think to a degree, I think like all of us, you know, the um, probably a lesson as we all move forward in our career that the people that we keep in touch with and, and work with are, are often some of the best we learn from people and they become um, folks as you grow in your career, you continue to work with and learn from. And so definitely some, you know, great Microsoft execs or advisors or investors in our business, which is awesome. Um, the weird thing, when I was at Microsoft, it was sort of this era, we kind of call it the Steve Ballmer era. And I was there, obviously, in the transition to Satya. But in that era, no one left Microsoft. It was very much, you were there and you were kind of a lifer. And, and so your relationships were all in Microsoft. As the years went on, it's kind of neat in a way because people started leaving Microsoft and going to do other really cool things. And so uh, for me, a lot of my network then became people that were doing things in other tech companies. You know, in Brazil, my leadership team and my colleagues in Brazil are now the head of almost every tech company in Brazil because they were foreign. There were Brazilians who could work with the multinational. They spoke English. They understood tech. And it's Salesforce, SAP, GCP, like you name it. Almost every one of them is led by someone who worked with me at Microsoft at that time in Brazil. Oh, very cool. And so it's, it's neat. But the network in that sense is often learning. You know, we haven't prioritized go-to-market activities in Brazil. So do I get to work directly with those people? No. But are they often informing us and, and sharing things with us and connecting us with their friends? Um, yeah, sometimes that's, of course, really helpful. Well, um, one of the other things you, you mentioned earlier before we started that you've learned a lot about, and you mentioned you, you wrote a book related to the subject, was the value of listening. Yeah, that's right. I, again, a lot of it stemmed from being in the room or being in rooms and at tables where I, I couldn't talk. And not being able to speak, you know, I didn't learn Chinese. I got pretty good understanding. I could speak a bit to get around, but I wasn't ready to have a business conversation, for example, in, in Chinese and in Mandarin. 
And so I had to get really good at, at listening and us trying to find ways to cobble together my basic Chinese or their basic English to have, an, have a conversation. And what I really learned was that there was this, this intimate relationship between a culture internally where employees feel like they're listened to and they're heard and then how they carry that to their customers. And so I had a bunch of, when I first moved to China, all these big Chinese companies, first I was nervous. I was like, I don't want to go out and meet, I can't speak to these people. Like, let me just stay internally where some people speak English in the office. But quickly I realized that the companies were really interested in learning from my background because I had worked in other countries. And it, in China at the time, and a lot of the business leaders were very interested in, hey, educate me about best practices around the world. And so they were interested in having conversations. And so I would jump into these and then they would quickly ask me, hey, another problem I'm having is about employees and employee retention. You know, I train my employees and then they leave because a competitor hires them away. Or the customers that I have, um, someone offers a cheaper product from the factory down the street and then they, they, they leave me. And so I really went into deep thought and kind of research on this topic around loyalty. And I started researching other companies I'd spend time with. And one of them was in the US, a uh, company we probably all know now and, and I certainly respect, which is Warby Parker. You know, in the eyeglasses, order online, yeah. visit the retail store. And, you know, Warby was so interesting to learn from because when you watch from the moment that an employee is first hired at Warby, their team meetings on kind of the first, their first new day, or just sitting, you know, watching them in their call centers, like they are hunting for customer feedback. Because they know that that employee is hunting to listen to the customer. Oh, how did it go? How did that feel? Did you have a good experience in our store? How did it feel when you tried that on? Is there anything we could be doing better? Because they knew that whatever they learned in that customer conversation, their colleagues and their management cared. And so they, they were listening deeply to their customer because they knew that their management was listening deeply to them. And so it helped me realize that there's this fortuitous cycle where if you have a culture internally where an employee feels heard and like their voice matters, they're going to carry that to what they're doing with customers. And then frankly, the business gets to learn from the customers. And when any human feels like they're listened to, they feel respected, they feel heard. And that's a gateway to building trust. And that ultimately is what creates loyalty, whether that's employee retention or, um, or customer retention. I love that. And I... I know that all employees at the end of the day, they, they want to be listened to, right? They want their opinion to matter. They, they, they want to be heard. And, um, you know, I, have seen that a little bit after I've taken over as a CEO at full scale, you know, I've, I've heard from a couple of employees like, Matt, it's just great to have somebody new, somebody that wants to listen, wants to hear our ideas, right? Like everybody wants to be heard and, 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 you know, I can't do every, I can't take every suggestion. I can't do everything that they want to do. And, but at the end of the day, it feels amazing to them just to be heard, just the listening part of it. And I think it's interesting to talk about the psychology of Warby Parker and, and how that played out. Yeah, for me, it was exactly as you described, it's interesting, coming into a new role like that. I had this experience you know, many times in my career, but one stands out in particular when I went to work at a you know, lead Microsoft business in Hong Kong. And when I went in, it was actually our worst performing business in the region. And by far, and 12 months later, we were the number one performing business. And I was like, how did we pull that off? And a lot of it became when I first started, I went and I had one-on-ones deeply with everyone in my org. It took weeks and I, I, people culturally it was a little bit awkward. Like, oh, why is the boss, you know, they go, why is the boss meeting with me? And what about my manager? And, you know, the manager said, are you, why are you skipping over me? Do you not trust me? And I said, no, no, I'm just, I'm here to get to know everyone and to kind of hear and listen for feedback and ideas. And everybody I met with, by being a good listener, I actually had great ideas for what we could be doing differently, how we could change the business. 
And to your point, you don't necessarily, not every one of them leads into action, but they felt like they were heard and their voice was heard. And so then as we're able to collate those and put together a plan, they knew that that their opinion had been heard and been considered in creating that plan. And so everyone kind of got behind it and felt bought in and was a part of what we were going to go do. And we did it then all as a, as a team, as an org, and it really worked. And then that gave us trust to try more things. And then more people felt comfortable speaking up and sharing their ideas. And that let the business just continue yeah. to grow from there. Yeah, I think that's the key thing is it helps cultivate the, the, the next idea too, right? Where if they work in an environment where they know nobody's going to care, nobody's going to listen, like they, there's no stream of ideas, right? And so it's about opening up that stream of ideas. I, I really like that. That's really good. What What was your book about? Tell us more about your book. Yeah, this was a lot of the core concepts in there. You know, this it was called Loyal, Listen or You yeah. Always Lose. And so the connection between uh, having a culture of listening in your organization and how that can create loyalty with with employees and customers. And, you know, listening is not the only way to drive re- customer employee retention, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a core element. One thing I, I talk about in there is a model I introduce, I call stay, like you want customers or employees to stay. And that there are pieces in it. I think of one is salary, like are you paying competitively and fairly or are, you, are they being compensated well? Training. Is there appropriate training for them to learn and continue to grow? Is there alignment often between the employee and the both the culture and mission of the company? You know, do they care about what they're selling or doing or working on? And are they um, are they in the right role? Because often you can have really talented people that, as a company look, grow, evolves and grows, especially they might might have great talents, but they might not be in the right role. And then I often say, why in the stay model was you as a manager? engaging and listening and being there and helping to adapt. And oftentimes a manager thinks, oh, I can, you know, outsource the first three to HR. Are they paid well? Are they getting training? Are they, you know, uh, in the right role? Um, but the, the point of kind of why is to say this is you as a manager really have to engage if you're going to create a culture where em- employees um, want to stay. Yeah. And then the day, business is all about people, you know, especially for us at full scale, I've got 300 employees without them. I don't have a business, right? They are our product. And if you're listening, you need to hire software developers. You can check us out at fullscale.io. We care a lot, a lot about our employees. Our employees are our whole business. So we're always trying to figure out how to, how to make them happy. And it's a win-win with our customers, right? Our, our, our team is our customer's team for what we do. So um, it's all about yeah, and your And your business in particular, I think this concept where the culture you created with full scale and how they're able to carry that to what they engage with their customers is just so critical because literally yeah. your, your customers are buying people right there. They're borrowing, engaging, using the people that you have. So your culture and the training around it and, and every, everything that you built is so fundamental. It probably is a differentiator for you in the market. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. Um, again, this was Aaron Painter with, with NameTag and your company is Git or your website address is gitnametag.com. Um, and we'll have a link in the show notes. Um, sounds like a really, really powerful tool um, for a lot of the use cases you mentioned earlier. Sounds like you're really focused on like help desk and unlocking accounts and things like that, where it's high value security, you know, transactions. Sounds like something that's greatly needed and and definitely solves real world problems. So congrats for you, to you for figuring this out and, and building it. So. Thanks. I appreciate it. And thanks for all the good work you do on the podcast. I love listening. There's so many great stories. So I I know you spent a lot of time on this and uh, it's certainly fulfilling to be a listener. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Um, And uh, thank you for being on the show. And thank you. It's a pleasure. All right. Take care. 
Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time. We do it.